Well, it's been awesome seeing all of the, the gifts, all the toys that have been pouring in for the different outreaches we've done uh, this, this Christmas season. We, uh, we, we, sp- we, we sent a bunch of gifts out to Angel Tree, um, which was, was caring for uh, uh, children of imprisoned kids, of imprisoned parents and uh, imprisoned kids. Yeah, it's really good. Um, and, uh, we, uh, and then we, uh, we, a bunch of you guys brought poinsettias for, uh, for the elderly, and that was awesome. And then we had like about 700 toys that we sent into the inner city to the Union Rescue Mission. Um, remember last year we had the highest amount of gifts out of any church. I, I, did we win this year? Yeah. We're having a recount. Okay. There's a, this is very important to me. Okay. This is very important stuff to me. Because um, Christmas is all about winning. Um, but, you know, it was just so cool to me last year to think, you know, that's so cool that here are churches in Simi Valley, you know, and out of all the churches in Southern California, we were known as a church that gave the, the greatest amount. And that's just so cool. Uh, I mean, another thing happened this week. I was over at uh, Baja Fresh, and um, a lady from our church comes up to me. She goes, I, I got to tell you, I got to tell you something that happened to me this week. She goes, I'm at Target, and uh, the lady in front of me, you know, checked out all her stuff and left and then came back to the register and said, you know what, I forgot to give you these $8 in coupons. The lady register said, "Sorry, it's too late. You know, you snooze, you lose. You know, it's it, you, you can't use those." And so this woman from our church looks at the lady and goes, "You know what? I'll buy those from you. you know, here's eight dollars. I'll buy those coupons from you, and maybe I can use them." And uh, the lady looks at her and goes, well, "That's nice, you know." And, and and so she goes, "Well, you know, I just thought it was a Christian thing to do." And the lady looks at her and this is what she says. She goes, "You must go to Cornerstone." <laughs> I thought, "No way." I said, that was her response. And she goes, yes. Yeah. So I looked at her. I go, well, did you see me there? And she goes, no. And I thought, that is so cool that, uh, you know, the first thing that came to this woman's mind when someone just did this random act of kindness was, you must go to Cornerstone Church. And I thought, man, that is so cool because obviously someone or some members of this church had ministered to that lady before. And somehow in her mind, that was the reputation of this church. And it just reminded me how much each of our individual actions impact the reputation of this place. I mean, every single individual, however you act, impacts other people. And I want you to think, if you were the only person that someone knew from Cornerstone, what would they think of this church? Based upon your actions, based upon your lifestyle. Because I wish I could say that, man, yeah, any time the name Cornerstone's mentioned, I hear good reports. But there have been a few times when the reports haven't been so great. When someone in the community finds out, oh, you're the pastor at Cornerstone? Well, a guy from your church totally ripped me off. And I go, I think he was probably visiting, you know. <laughs> you, know and, you know, and you try to, you know, come up with something, you know. Uh, but... Uh, it's not always always so positive and because, you know, at the same time, while a few members can just give the church a wonderful reputation, at the same time, all it takes is a few individuals to spoil the reputation of the church and to spoil the reputation of Christianity as a whole. In fact, that's really what happens in this church in, in Pergamum in, uh, in, the, in the book of Revelation. When Jesus talks to them, this church, for the most part, was a good church again, you know. As a whole, man, they believed in Jesus, they believed in the Bible, but there were a few individuals. It seemed like there were some individuals in the church that kind of spoiled the reputation of the church. 
because there were certain individuals in there that were members of the church, but they tried to mix Christianity with other teachings. They tried to accept some of the other faiths and kind of mix it together with Christianity. And Jesus writes this church, writes this letter to the church in Pergamum, and he confronts them because even though this pocket of people are teaching things that are untrue, no one in the church is confronting them. The church is kind of indifferent toward these people. Maybe it's because they want to be popular, you know, and and, and in Pergamum, you got to understand, in that city, there was like an idol on every corner. There was a temple or a statue or an idol at every corner. I mean, you've got people from all around the world with all these different religions coming to the city of Pergamum, a pretty wealthy city. And, and you've got all this pressure to just kind of conform and accept all these other teachings. Well, it could be that the people in Pergamum or the church in Pergamum just thought, you know what, if we confront these individuals, you know, they may reject us. You know, let's just kind of accept their teachings. It's kind of like Southern California. You know how we've got people from all around the world. We've got every single religion down here. And there's so much pressure to just be tolerant of all beliefs. And just kind of accept everything. Why do you have to preach it, everyone? Why do you have to say your way is the only way? Um, and it's not a very popular view. And so there's all this pressure to conform and accept. And it seems like the church in Pergamum kind of gave in to that. They kind of allowed these people to believe what they wanted to believe. And Jesus uh, doesn't like it. I mean, look, look at how he addresses the church in uh, Revelation 2, verse 12. Listen to this greeting. He says, to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, these are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. Okay? How do you like that greeting? Okay, here's the words of the one that has the sharp, double-edged sword. Remember when he greeted Ephesus, you know, the church that lost its first love? He says, this is from the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Remember when he greeted Smyrna, the the persecuted church? He says, this is from the one who died and rose again. Yet here he's he's talking to Pergamum, and he says, this is the one who has the sharp, two-edged sword. Why would he introduce himself in that way? Well, he wanted to produce some sort of fear in these people. A fear of him rather than a fear of being rejected by other people. To explain, listen, look, I'm the one. I'm the one with the sharp two-edged sword. Be, be more fearful of me than these other people. Because if we were honest, okay, none of us like to be rejected. Okay, no one wants to go and confront someone else and then, you know, get into some sort of confrontation and maybe even be rejected and maybe even lose a friend. But at the same time, we've got to understand, in order to stand for what is right, sometimes we have to say what is unpopular. And Jesus is trying to get this church to, to understand that, yeah, I understand you fear other people, but you need to fear me even more because I'm the one with the sharp, two-edged sword. I mean, imagine getting a letter from Jesus, and that's the way he introduces himself. Not as the loving Savior, not as the good shepherd, not as the one who died and rose again, but he says, look, I'm the one who holds the sharp, two-edged sword. Remember in that description of Jesus when John first saw him, he says he had a sharp, two-edged sword coming out of his mouth. Those are the words that he uses here. And then in verse 13, he gives him a little encouragement. First, he says, I know where you live. 
Okay, so I mean, it wasn't a threat. It's like, hey, I know where you live. No, he was saying, I know, I know where you live in the sense of, uh, you know, I know what that city is like. I mean, Pergamos was a difficult place to live because you've got so many other religions there, and you've got people that are just anti-Christianity. He says, I know where you live, and he says, where Satan has his throne. Okay, so somehow that city was called the throne of Satan. Um, And there's some different thoughts on why that is. What I believe is, is because, okay, in that town, there was this huge temple. It was a temple that was devoted to a god named Asclepios. Okay, Asclepios was a serpent. Okay, a serpent. They worshipped a serpent. I mean, just like in the beginning, Adam and Eve, and they were, you know, deceived by the serpent. Here at this temple, they worship, and there's this, this, this serpent seated on a throne. I mean, that was their idol. That was the picture. And people would come from all around the world to come. And in that place, there were these living serpents, and they would feed them. And they felt like somehow that was a religious act of worship to feed these snakes. In fact, now this gets kind of weird. People who were sick would come to this city of Pergamum, and they would go to this temple of Asclepios, and they would, they would sleep. They would sleep in these, these like dark rooms in the temple if they were sick, and they would have these non-poisonous snakes crawling around. And the belief was, was if you were asleep in that temple and one of these snakes crawls over you, you would be healed. Okay? The hospital sounds pretty good right now, huh? I mean, it, it was a pretty crazy thing. And so when he says the, the seat, you know, where Satan has his throne, I believe it was a reference to this temple because it, it was like they're not even being discreet about their satanic worship. Um, you know how today, you know, cults will try to uh, uh, take some of the Bible and make it sound like they're doing a good thing by teaching some of the Bible and adding their own beliefs to it? You know, and they kind of, you know, just disguise their religion and make it, you know, under the guise of Christianity. Well, here's, here's a church back then that didn't even try. Here's a temple that just says, you know, we worship the serpent. You know, come here and be healed by the snakes, you know, and, and sleep overnight and, and feel the power of these snakes. I mean, pretty blatantly satanic. And, and so Jesus is writing to them. He goes, look, I know what type of city you live in. I know there's temples everywhere. I know that that's where the, the throne of Satan is, in a sense. And then he says, and yet through all that, you remain true to my name. So he's saying, that's a great thing. Even with all this pressure, you still do not deny the name of Jesus. He says, you did not renounce your faith in me. You didn't just deny me and give up the faith. He goes, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city, where Satan dwells, or where Satan lives. He goes, you guys didn't give up your faith, even in the days of Antipas who was martyred there. Now, we don't know a lot about Antipas. The only thing we know is what's written in this verse. Somehow, a guy named Antipas was martyred there, obviously, for his Christianity. In fact, the name Antipas, anti means against, and pos means all, against all. So it seems like there was this individual, Antipas, who stood against the flow of everything else and stood for what is right. And because of that, he was martyred. He was killed. We don't know if he was beheaded or whatever. But... uh, Somehow, the believers, when they saw, here's a man staying for righteousness and he was martyred, even then they didn't back down. Even then they said, no, we still stand for Jesus Christ. So, pretty good church. 
I mean, here in this, in, this, in this world where all these other religions are trying to influence them, they say, no, we stand on who Jesus is. But then look at verse 14. Jesus says, nevertheless, I have a few things against you. You have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Okay. So Jesus says, while I appreciate the fact that you guys don't deny my name, even in this evil culture, he goes, I've got a couple of things against you. There are a couple of things about this church that really disturb me. He says, one, you have people in there that hold to the teachings of Balaam. And you also have people in there who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. He explains the teaching of Balaam, and, and we, we read about that in Numbers 22, 23. Um, Balaam, remember, he was a prophet of Israel. He was a prophet of God, and uh, he, he was one of the Jewish prophets. And uh, back then, the Moabites and the Midianites were trying to destroy Israel. They're trying to kill the Jews, the, the people of Israel. And so they go to Balaam, who is a prophet of Israel, and they say to Balaam, would you please curse the children of Israel? Now, Balaam's a prophet of God, you know, and, and from the nation of Israel. And they're asking Balaam to curse the, the Israelite people. And Balaam refuses. But in chapter 31, we learn in Numbers 31 that what Balaam did is he goes to the king of the Moabites and to the Midianites. And he says to them, do you guys want to take down the Israelite people? Because let me tell you what you can do. I'm not going to curse them. but This is something you can do. He goes, tempt them. Tempt them with foreign women. Tempt them with people who don't believe in God. And then what they'll do is they'll get into relationships. They'll cohabitate with, with foreign women, with foreign wives. They'll get intermarried. And then eventually all that idol worship will come to them as well. Pretty interesting, isn't it? And that was his plan. He goes, you want to take down Israel, get them to marry people who don't believe in God. It's the most effective way. Gosh, and I cannot think of a more, more powerful, a quicker way to quench the fire of a believer than to have them fall in love with an unbeliever. I mean, I, I saw it all the time, especially when I was a, a youth pastor. You know, you have these high school guys or high school girls that are just on fire for God, witnessing, serving, and everything else. And then eventually they fall in love with someone who doesn't love God. And they get so wrapped up into them and into their world and everything else that suddenly the passion's gone, the fire's dead. And so that's why Balaam says, you know what, do that to the Israelites. And that's exactly what happened to Israel. They get involved with these people who don't believe in God. They intermarry and suddenly their faith drops. And about 20,000 of them were influenced. And so what's going on in this church in Pergamos is it seems like they were, uh, they were doing the same thing. They were cohabitating with people who didn't believe in God which is directly against Scripture. 2 Corinthians 6 tells us that that's absolutely wrong. And then uh, what, what, what happened, though, is uh, they would allow all sorts of other types of immorality in the church. That was the practice of the Nicolaitans that's mentioned here. Okay, the Nicolaitans, remember, they are followers of Nicholas of Antioch, one of the original deacons, who uh, seemed to kind of walk away from God. And what that belief system was all about is that they would believe in God. They would believe just about everything in the Bible but they would also accept other sins. 
they would kind of bring in some other teachings and, and try to mix it all together. It was like an extremely liberal Christianity, if you could call it that. And um, there was a ton of pressure in that day because they would have these huge feasts, like these big parties, um, pagan feasts, where they would eat like food sacrificed to idols. And then uh, people would start hanging out, mixing it up, and pretty soon the sexual immorality crept in. And, uh, and it was hard. It, it'd be like if, if you were to say, you know what, uh, I'm never going to go to a movie again. It's like, well, no, everyone's doing it. Everyone's going to the movies. You know, it's kind of the, the culturally acceptable thing to do. Well, that's kind of what these parties were to them. Or, or parties today, you know, parties to them were like, come on, you know, everyone's going to this feast. I got to go. And you can see why it'd be easier in that environment because you're thinking, well, it's not like I'm worshiping snakes. I'm just going to this party over here. I'm just going, I'm going to have a few drinks, going to eat some meat, sacrifice idols, and dance around a little bit, maybe hook up with someone. You know, and it's like it doesn't seem as bad as those guys that are sleeping in that dungeon with snakes. And so it started to get into the church and no one was confronting it. So look at what Jesus says in, in verse 16. He says, Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Okay, those are pretty harsh words. He goes, Repent. And you guys know what repent means. It means do a 180. Stop doing whatever you're doing. It doesn't say just cry about it, feel bad about your sin. It's actually change. He goes, Otherwise, I'm going to come and I will fight against you. Can you imagine if God said to you, if you don't change, I'm going to come and I'm going to fight against you with the sword of my mouth. It's pretty strong. That's pretty powerful. God was pretty angry at this church for allowing that type of teaching in the church without it being confronted. But interesting, look at the wording, though, of verse 16. Okay? When he says, repent, therefore, otherwise, what does he say? I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. What's he talking about? He says, I will come to you and I will fight against them. When he says, I will come to you, obviously he's talking to the church in Pergamos. I will come to you as a church because this whole church is guilty. But he says, and I will fight against them. Who are they? They are the individuals in the church that are believing this false doctrine and are teaching and accepting these other teachings. God says, I'm going to fight against them. See, so while God is frustrated with the whole church, there's a special wrath for those within the church who are actually in the sin themselves. It doesn't mean that God say, okay, the rest of the church is okay, the rest of the church is fine. Because he's telling the whole church to repent. And he's telling them, you better confront those guys, otherwise I'm going to go and I'm going to fight against them. So he's warning the church and saying, gosh, don't you love those individuals in your church? Don't you love those people? Why don't you go and confront them and help them to turn and repent so that I don't have to fight against them? So I don't have to destroy them. And you guys, this, this brings me to a very, very important point. Um, you guys, if you know of someone that's in the church that uh, calls himself a Christian but totally holds on to their sin, you know, not that they're struggling with it, but they just hold on to it. And they try to mix their sin with their Christianity. 
and you don't say anything to them, and that's the most unloving thing you can do. You see, we've got it all wrong. I mean, because what happens when, what happens, you guys have probably done this, where you talk to a friend about something you see in their life that just isn't right, or they're believing something that just isn't true, and so you go confront them on it, what do they say? You're judging me, right? And, and it's looked upon as, well, you don't judge people. We're Christians, we don't judge people. But yet the Bible specifically tells us we are supposed to judge those within the church. 1 Corinthians 5 and 6 talk about that. How we're supposed to judge. Why? Here, here Jesus is telling, you know what? You better go and tell those people. You better go and confront those people. Why? Because if you don't, I'm going to come to them and I'm going to fight against them with the sword of my mouth. You guys in the church, we've got this all wrong. We think, okay, well, the most loving thing to do is just leave them alone. How is that loving? You leave them alone and say, well, just leave them alone and just wait until God judges them. You guys, how is that loving? Man, if I am doing something wrong, if I'm heading in the wrong direction in my life, please tell me because I'd much rather hear it from you than from God. And so understand, when, when we see people in sin, you know, the greatest thing we can do for them is to help turn them around. And that's what Jesus is saying to these people. Is He goes, man, why don't you talk to them? Why don't you get them to repent so I don't have to come with the sword of my mouth and fight against them? And you guys, i got to say, the most, uh, most loving thing I could do right now is to tell those of you in this room who are trying to mix your Christianity with, with your sin and trying to hold on to your sin at the same time. And it's time to walk away. It's not worth it. You guys, it's the stupidest thing you could do. To claim to know Christ and have a relationship with Him and yet try to hold on and mix it with your sin. There's probably some of you right now who are involved in extramarital affairs. There's probably some of you right now that as you're sitting next to your spouse or maybe your spouse isn't here, you know in your heart you're not being faithful to them. And you guys, I'm just telling you right now, it's not worth it. The Bible says repent. And I'm telling you that right now. Turn away. It is not worth it. It is never worth it to sin against God. Don't think that you're deceiving anyone. So what if you're fooling your spouse? God sees through it all and it's not worth it. Some of you are holding on to some secret addictions that maybe no one else knows. Maybe drugs, alcohol, pornography. Man, and I'm just saying, walk away. Take this as a warning from God so that you don't need to face the wrath of God. Man, come clean with who you are. And you guys, and there's probably some of you in this room, and i got to say this one. Probably some of you in this room right now who you're here and you feel like, well... You know, this Christianity stuff is good, but I'm a good person. I'm a pretty good person, and because I consider myself a pretty good person, I think I'm going to go to heaven because I'm a good person. You guys, I can promise you, I absolutely promise you, if that is what you believe, that you are going to heaven because you're a good person, I promise you, you will spend eternity in hell. Those are not easy words for me to say. 
but it would be so unloving of me to just pat you on the back, say Merry Christmas, and let you leave here believing that because of your good works, that'll somehow get you into heaven. Because it won't. I mean, I could look at my own life and say, well, I live a pretty good life. I help a lot of people. But that's not going to save me. Because the truth is, is that I'm a sinner, you're a sinner. We've all blown it before God. No matter how many good things we've done. And we all need to, at some point in our lives, recognize that God loved us so much that He sent His Son, Jesus. That's what Christmas is all about, sending His Son, Jesus, to die on the cross for us. And He was on that cross paying the penalty for everything that I did wrong. And because of that, I try to live the way God wants me to. Because of that, I try to live a good life out of a love for God, but not because that saves me, but because I am saved through Jesus Christ. And you guys, I've got to tell you, if you think that anything else will save you other than what Jesus did on the cross, you are absolutely wrong. You are so wrong. And I don't say that out of arrogance. I say it out of concern. Because I don't want you to believe in something that's not going to work. And you can study, you can research, you can read all you want, and you'll come to the same conclusion. Jesus Christ died for you, and He loves you, and He wants a relationship with you. And nothing else is going to save you from your sin. He concludes in verse 17. He says this, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I'll give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it. Okay. In the book of Revelation, every once in a while you'll read a verse where you just read it and you go, what in the world is he talking about? I have no clue. You know, you'll read something and have all the symbolism. You go, what is that? Okay, here's one of those verses that probably you've read in the past and you go, a white stone with a new name, manna. What is that all about? Let's look at it piece by piece. First of all, he says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Do you understand that part? He's saying, if you have ears to listen, if you're willing to listen, listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. And then he says this, To him who overcomes, the one who overcomes the sinfulness, the one who overcomes this apathy toward, you know, false doctrine in the church, to him who overcomes, he goes, I will give him some of the hidden manna. I will give him the hidden manna. Where where do you hear about manna? Exodus. Yeah, remember the children of Israel when they leave Egypt, God gives them this supernatural bread-like substance. Um, you know, they're in the desert and there's nothing out there. And then God causes this manna to fall upon the ground. And it's like this bread-like substance. It was food from God. Now, what he says here, he says, if you overcome, if you're one of these who overcome, you know, whatever it may be, the tribulation, you know, the, the persecution, whatever, because if you will overcome and keep your faith intact, he says, you will get some of this hidden manna. The hidden manna. So somehow this food that comes from God that hasn't been seen yet. It's not like the manna that the Israelites got. He says this is a hidden manna. I believe that this is a reference to the last supper or the the marriage supper or, or this great feast that is talked about when we come before Christ. Somehow there's they're talking about this marriage supper of the Lamb like a wedding reception because the Bible calls us, the church, the bride and Christ, the bridegroom. And somehow when we unite for all of eternity, the Bible talks about this marriage supper. 
and about this feast, about this feast that we're going to have with God. I believe that's what this hidden manna is talking about because it also goes well with the next phrase. When he says, I will also give him a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it. Because not only will you get hidden manna, but you'll get this white stone okay, with, with a name written on it. What is that about? Okay, back then, in order to get admission to certain things, you know, we have tickets. Back then, they'd have rocks. Okay, it's like, hey, I got Laker rocks. You know, and, uh, and it would have their name written on it. That was kind of their, their entrance to admission. And it, it was also a, uh, it's a pretty well-established custom that uh, when they'd have those games and competitions, that the victors would actually get a stone with their name on it, and that would give them admission to the victory feast. Okay, or if the king would have a feast and he wanted to invite the victors of the games, they would get the stone with, with their name written. You know, so when they came to the party, you know, and, and the bouncers in the front, he'd show them his stone. And he'd, all right, come on in. And he'd go in and he'd be a part of this victory type of feast or victory celebration. And so I believe that what this stone is, is, is basically our entrance or our admission into this marriage supper of the Lamb. But interesting thing, it says that, that uh, you'll get this white stone with a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it. You get a new name. It's not your earthly name, but you, give a, you get a new name. And what he's saying is that this name means a ton to you, but it means nothing to anyone else. It only has meaning to the one who receives it. So somehow it has something to do with your relationship with God where you look at the rock and you go, hmm, wow, that's awesome. Or someone else would look at your rock and go, that has no meaning to me. You see, because in my relationship with God, there are things that I have experienced that you have no understanding about. And I think somehow that this name that's given to me is going to reflect that. Somehow I'm going to look at it and go, yeah, that totally describes my relationship with God. And you wouldn't get it, but I would. See, there's a couple things about this new name that really excite me. I mean, first of all, it excites me because that means I get rid of Francis. You know, I don't get to have to be called that for all eternity. And, uh, but, uh, but the other thing, and the real thing is, uh, you know, when it says that, gosh, that there's, there's individuality in my relationship with God. It shows that I'm not just a number. It shows that somehow, because of everything I've experienced with God in this lifetime, because of the, the way I feel during certain times of my life, because of what God's done to me, and I try to explain to other people, and they just don't get it. But it shows that there's some sort of individuality in that. And God looks at me as an individual. And that's what's going to be shown on that rock, is my individual relationship with Him. Because you know what? It, it reminds us that if we are really to apply what he has said here, to go out and, and maybe confront other people, you know, we'll be rejected by people. We may lose some friends when we tell them the truth. But God is explaining, look, but if you do it, you've got this unique relationship with me. There's this incredible bond with me. You're going to spend eternity with me. And I'm going to give you a new name that describes your relationship with me. See, the tough thing about this passage is this. Okay. If you're anything like me, you hate rejection. Okay. 
You just enjoy being liked. I, I've, ever since I was a kid, I can remember I always wanted to be the fun guy. You know, I always enjoyed making people laugh and just having a good time with them. I remember in elementary school, you know, one of our assignments was in our class. We had to, we had a, we had a, to pretend it was a city. We made like a block with our, our desks. And everyone came in at a different occupation. We had all this play money. And people would come in and they'd open a bakery. You know, like one gal opened a bakery and she'd bring in cookies and people would give play money for cookies. Another gal made crafts. Someone else did this. I opened a casino. Okay? And all the kids would want to come to my table and play blackjack with their funny money. You know, I mean, but that was just me. Ever since I was a kid, it was like, man, I just loved, you know, being the life of the party. I just loved, you know, having fun and just laughing with people. And, uh, and so it is so hard for me when people reject me. It is so hard when I go and I confront someone on something and, and afterwards that relationship with them is kind of severed because they feel like I'm judging them or whatever, when in reality I'm just concerned about them. Man, this week I'm on the phone with, with a lady who, uh, who called the church and we're talking about different stuff. And, and, um, and so I'm trying to explain, you know, what Jesus has done for her, you know, and forgiven her. And, and she, she says to me, she goes, you know, the more you talk, the more angry I get. I thought, oh, okay. Sound like my wife. Uh, no, okay. No, she doesn't say that. When, uh, but then I go, I go, you know what, I'm sorry, you know, but I, I, had to, I had to tell you about Jesus. And she goes, don't you dare try to convert me. And I said, you know what, I, I do not mean to make you mad, but I had to try. I couldn't just deny my Savior and suddenly click. And it's like, gosh, you know that feeling when your heart's just pumping and it's just like, gosh, I don't, I, I don't like people. You know, I don't wake up in the morning thinking, man, who can I tick off today? You know, who can I just make so angry? It doesn't even enter my mind. My, my thought is like, gosh, I want people to like me and everything else. And yet at the same time, you know that out of love for those people, the most loving thing you can do is tell them the truth. And, uh, and I know some of you have been rejected for things that you have said to your friends when you've confronted sin. You've been rejected by, even by family members when you've told them about the relationship you have with Jesus Christ. And while that's hard, i got to ask you, man, what's the alternative? You don't say anything to them? Just wish them a Merry Christmas and, and, you know, and wait till the day when you're separated for eternity? Look, you may, you may, your reputation may get hurt. You may be separated from some friends, but it's a chance we got to take so that we're not separated from them for all of eternity. And I would just really encourage you. I mean, I want you to think right now. Who are some people you know and love that aren't walking with God? If you question whether they have a genuine relationship with God, not that you're judging them, you're just concerned about them. My question is, is do you love them enough to possibly risk your relationship for the chance that it may better their relationship with Christ? For the chance that Jesus wouldn't have to come to them at the end and fight against them with the sword of his mouth? See, the church in Pergamum, they didn't have that kind of love. They weren't willing. They didn't fear God enough. But I pray that we would. Would you just bow your heads right now? Spend some time praying for those friends of yours who aren't walking with God.
Father, I, I pray for uh, everyone that's being prayed for right now. God, friends and family members who don't know you. And God, during this season, I just pray that we would have the boldness and the love to go and lovingly share with them. And God, for some of us, that mean, may mean we're rejected. God, just help us to keep in mind that there are people around the world who are killed for doing these types of things, but they they love enough to do it, and I pray that we would also. God, I pray that, God, as our church grows, that we would have a reputation of a church that upholds your word and doesn't allow false teaching. God, I pray that we would love people enough to confront them in their sin. God, even if it means rejection, God, may we be that loving just like your son was. God, and we thank you that uh, that we're saved. We thank you that someone cared enough to tell us the truth, that this Christmas season we can celebrate Jesus, celebrate that child that was born 2,000 years ago who was, the, who was your son who came to die for us. God, we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. You guys, as you go out, you know, and you, you hear that song about what Christmas is all about, that one small child. I, I pray that you would take advantage of this season um, to tell the good news of what Christmas is all about. Because next weekend, I mean, next Sunday is going to be incredible over at Royal High School. Uh, what a great opportunity to invite friends, maybe people who don't know God, who don't understand what it's all about, to a non-threatening environment, a, a, a high school, just to come for a short Christmas Eve service. And to pray for them that this may be the time when they finally understand what it all means. It's an incredible opportunity. I pray that you, you take advantage of it. And, and you guys, as you go out, and, and maybe some of you need to confront some people, maybe you need to share with some people, it's not going to go well all the time. Um, it, and a lot of times it's going to hurt quite a bit. But just realize it's the most loving thing you can do. And the most unloving thing you can do is just kind of leave those people alone and let God deal with them. No, we've got to care for people more than that. And so I pray that you take the opportunity this Christmas season to share with people what Christmas is all about. Let me pray for us as we go. Father, we are just blessed this Christmas season, and we are thrilled of what you have done in our lives. And so, God, I just pray that you'd give us the boldness and the love to go and share that with other people. And I pray that next Sunday, as we worship you together at Royal High School, that it will just be a, such a powerful, meaningful service for everyone who attends. And mainly that it will be meaningful to you. That we'll truly worship you with all of our hearts because of what you did for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.